You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. I'm Aida Osman. I have been under attack. Oh, girl. This, 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 this weekend. <laughs> it is too early for this, uh, Ira. <laughs> I just want to say, you know we have Keep It Weekly on Snapchat. Right. The video segment. Oh, me there. too. I know what you're going to bring up. Yes. The, the, oh. the, the, the poothers are not happy. They are not happy well nobody talked to me that i dared to question who charlie pooth voted for and let me tell you something (laughs) let me tell you something youths uh when you have spent as much money on charlie pooth concert tickets as i have you get Mm -hmm. to ask if that money is going to the trump election fund okay likewise no i mean i've i've been to the same concert I've jammed to the same hollow notes like <laughs> grooves that he gives to us. And also, I don't know about you, the DMs I got about it were very like, who cares if you voted for someone different? Everybody has a different point of view. I'm like, no one has ever <laughs> oh. been dumber than you. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now that you guys are saying it, this is resonating with me. I did have a lot of those messages. I get them so much. I'm so mm. inundated with those. I ignored it. I didn't realize it was related to Charlie Puth. But yeah, a lot of white men I had to block this weekend. Yeah, well, yes. L- I, I Look at me co-opting a thing that happens to you as a black woman every day. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I forget. I've normalized it. That's like morning coffee for me. Morning coffee and death threats. The wildest ones were, of course, the ones that Lewis said, that there were some people just being like, who cares um, if you want to stop listening to an amazing artist because of who he supports, then shame on you for bullying him. (gasps) Bullying this man who I'm sure will never see that. Not bullying. (laughs) Right. For one, because he is rich and busy. Seems and, to be doing uh, fine. Seems to be doing fine. And also, he's like, Ira, you just want attention. You just want my... That's the only Charlie Puth song I know. I'm so sorry that it's... I just want to know, I, how long has this been going on, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> You're done for me. That's, it's not really a hit. It doesn't work as well. <laughs> but and just to reiterate, as we said before, you know, it is... Not like we are digging through his trash, you know, trying to find out who he voted for. But I Mm -hmm. think that as a global pop star who is wields a lot of influence and also has recently shifted into Nick Jonas-esque gay baiting in most of his Instagrams, Mm -hmm. which is fine. (laughs) I love it. But if you're going to be courting a gay fan base now um, to send yourself over, then your gays deserve to know who you voted for. That's it. It's completely conspicuous not to bring up the election in any capacity when you have that much power. Of course it's suspicious. (laughs) Yes. And I will also point out that... Some people sent me screenshots of 
tweets that he did like about the election, um, about Kamala winning, uh, about Biden being president-elect, etc. I looked at those likes, and they were all from a November 7th, 2020 forward. If you scroll back in his Twitter likes, there's not a single political like whatsoever. <laughs> so I did. also find that suspicious. Mm, like he like he did some hasty <laughs> indicating. Because by the way, it's like when you follow someone on Instagram, that's visible to everybody. So he's not doing that on accident. Yeah. Yeah. On Twitter, I think every celebrity knows that people look through your likes yeah. to see what you like. Mm-hmm. You know? He loves Taylor Swift. Be like Taylor Swift. See? I'm sure she mm-hmm. was annoyed. Um and I I guess, you know, hers was kind of worse, you know, because um white supremacists were claiming her. Um, you know, I don't know any white supremacists claiming Charlie Puth. Um, because they can't move Ryan, to his music. <laughs> except for Ryan Tedder, who is constantly in that man's Instagram comments. Enough. Right. right. Go make a new Rome Republic album. How about you do that? Please. Uh, but um, give us a racist song with Rihanna again. <laughs> what racist song did Ryan Tedder make with Rihanna? Why? Why is Ryan Tedder and Rihanna? Why are they singing Princess of China? For what? With who? Why are they in China? <laughs> oh, wow! Right, right, right. I, I Wait, just, that's Chris Martin. No, nah? from Coldplay. Oh, okay. Well, look, all these white men be doing offensive <laughs> shit to me. <laughs> <laughs> not you, not you confusing Yo. Coldplay and One Republic. Okay, we'll forward this message on to Chris Martin. I'm still mad. Princess in China. It is a wild song to have sung. That's yeah, that's insane. I will say about One Republic and Coldplay, they both have a a waterlogged masculine sensitivity. So I will, <laughs> if we keep this in the podcast, I sympathize on that front. <laughs> <laughs> Counting stars is f- offensive to the alien community. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's got it now. She's got it now. <laughs> all the right moves in all the right places uh, is offensive yeah. to people who are left-handed. See? Exactly. We could go on and on. Everything's wow. racist. Everything's part of a power structure. One Republic. Racist and ableist. <laughs> One Republic. What's the Republic? Tell me about that. Tell me about that. Which Republic? <laughs> well... <laughs> We have a fantastic episode coming up today. We are going to be joined by Rachel Bloom of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend fame and author of a new memoir, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are, which is out now. I want to say before she comes on that I saw her in the West Hollywood Pride Parade in 2016, because it was right after Pulse, and that woman sang the song Heavy Boobs for probably three hours straight on a float going down Santa Monica Boulevard. So don't tell me she didn't do anything for you. (laughs) Also, conservatives are up in arms about Harry Styles. A true pipe, a true pop icon. A true pipe icon, too. He really is. Can someone help this woman? My God, what's up with her today? (laughs) I can't. I can't think clearly. Aida, you are showing out today. Oh my god, I'm in a mood. Well, you guys know I'm in Twin Peaks, so I just feel cozy. I'm like, I feel like a Berenstein bear in this cabin. I'm just living my life. <laughs> you do look like a like a final girl in a movie or something, based on where you're sitting right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, terrifying. 
terrifying. Any moment, death could be right around the corner. Which, shockingly, I just started watching American Horror Story in 1984 last night. Oh. How's that going? Don't know why. And I should stop. It's not good. <laughs> is that a Sarah Paulson starring one? No, this is Leslie Grossman, right. Gus Kentworthy, Angelica Ross. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like Friday the 13th, and there are like six different killers running around the woods, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, it's fun. We'll be right back. While the race hasn't officially been called yet, LOL, y'all, Biden won more votes from Georgia voters than Trump, proving that Georgia is winnable. So many voters turned out on both sides that neither candidate in Georgia's two Senate races finished with over 50% of the vote, which is why we're headed to two Senate runoff elections in January. Control of the Senate is riding on these two races, and they are tight and snatched, just like John Ossoff. And... Reverend Raphael Warnock. But they have a shot to win and flip the Senate. That's why Vote Save America is back with Adopt a State Georgia edition. Sign up to Adopt Georgia at votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia and keep an eye on your email for the best ways to help organizers on the ground. They flipped this state for Biden and Harris. Let's help them finish it out. All right, it's that time again to talk about what we have consumed this week, the culture that we have been taking in, you know, what we have brought to today's salon (laughs) so that we can talk about um, the topics of the day. The listeners need this explained every week. They're confused. (laughs) I thought you were going to go to a Maya Angelou place and be like, words get into the furniture and stuff, just explaining the idea (laughs) Uh, of talking. Do <laughs> we have any hot gossip? Hot goss? Yes, I mean hot gossip as far as what you've been watching, what you've been enjoying. You know, I have um, taken a wild, wild turn into low culture this week in that I... Ira, this is not new, I, <laughs> but go on. Fair. Um, but what is new is that I am now bachelor nation oh well i did watch last week's episode and i would have forgotten about it had you not just said that so here we are i i I like my roommate royce um it loves the bachelor i've started watching it this season with him mostly because i was i'm very interested right now in watching reality shows that were filmed during covid because i want to know just sort of like how they changed the format. Um, I cannot, however, get into the Real Housewives of Orange County because um, those are racist, demonic women who clearly all voted for Trump. But um, Bachelorette was filmed in Palm Springs this year, um, like right outside of L.A. Um, because of COVID. And they had a Bachelorette, Claire, who started the show, and she is Older, she's like the oldest bachelorette. Um, she she, means she said she was 39 her... 50 times. Yes, yes, uh-huh. yes, yes. <laughs> she, she is basically Jessica from Love is Blind, an older woman who continues to talk about the fact that she is an older woman and then latches on to a very young man of color and terrorizes him. Claire. <laughs> 
basically falls in love with this guy, Dale, because they were filming The Bachelorette, and then they had to shut down um, and quarantine everyone. But there was the opportunity for her to, like, look at everyone's Instagrams, you know, in that period, like, find out who she was really vibing with. They claim that they did not talk during this period, but I do not believe them at all um, because she comes in when the show restarts, goes full throttle for Dale, basically ignores all the other guys, blows up the Bachelorette, as Chris Harrison continues to tell us, like, 900 times a week. And, like, three episodes in, she and Dale get engaged, and she leaves the show. And then a black woman, Tasha, comes in, and she is fucking gorgeous. And now I'm obsessed with the fact that they basically restarted the show three episodes in, and I'm so intrigued at, like, how they had her waiting there in time. Um, and it makes me think that, you know, maybe they were going to shoot like another season of the show or they were shooting mm. bachelor in paradise concurrently. Um, or they just had people on deck because of COVID, but she comes in and then some other new guys come in. Uh, and I am very intrigued, you know, to see another black woman as bachelorette. But first of all, it must be said, if you have not seen the Claire episodes, it's not that she liked Dale. It's that she would say the word Dale and truly would faint almost every time. Like she would say Dale and then burst into tears. Dale and then my husband. Dale and then diamonds. Just like, like she was possessed by this man who, I mean, I will say, is among the hottest people ever to be on The Bachelor. He's fucking gorgeous. Yeah. But you, you would have thought she was front row at the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles came on. <laughs> Shaking and crying. She has Dale mania. (laughs) Oh, my Uh, God. That's a reference I enjoy. Um, No, but she was obsessed with him. And her impatience with the run of the show and going through another, whatever, 11, 12, 13 episodes indicates that they had to have spoken over Instagram at some point. And she keeps talking about things like... Oh, you know, I well, I would run across his social media. Girl, it was your homepage. I know that. <laughs> she keeps talking about like, oh, I was just casually interested in checking out. I, I'm telling you, she like locked. Uh, he, this guy was in her crosshairs, and it was immediately over. Tasha, I am enjoying personality-wise. I don't know that she serves me anything I haven't seen on The Bachelorette before, but it is a. Mm-hmm. Why it is wildly insane to expect anything new on The Bachelorette. Right, you watch it often. Because of uh, your job. Yes. I, it, it comes on uh, before Jimmy Kimmel. So often we'll have like bits related to The mm. Bachelorette. Um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the past episode, they had like a trivia competition or something. And this guy who claims to go to Harvard named Chasen couldn't spell limousine. <laughs> Girl, first of all, we have been through the ringer with Tyra Banks. I know all about claiming you went to Harvard. And it turns out you went to a hairdressing academy there or whatever. So <laughs> <laughs> we are on to you. <laughs> And speaking of someone whose name rhymes with Jason, there is Jason, who um, left the show last week. Uh, He's the only person who uh, decides that they had feelings for Claire before and they can't continue on with the journey. Uh, And I low-key think it's because Jason didn't want to date a black woman. Mm. Mm. I I mean, a lot of these people are from, like... Not cities, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know you what know, I mean? So, like, yeah. if you do the switcheroo, you know, from white woman to black woman, like, I, it, it just seemed a little suspicious. But how much of a metaphor is it for 2020 that a white woman completely fumbled the bag and blew up this show and everything, and then they had to call on a black woman to fix it? <sighs> dang, dang. 
what have you two been watching that isn't um, reality television? I've just been watching The Bachelorette and Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, uh, which is insane <laughs> and not enough to go into yet. I was going to say, are, are, you, are you somebody's aunt in the, the Midwest with her pack of Winstons? Look at you. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of things that have, you know, been greatly altered because of coronavirus and the way they've been produced, I'm really into music videos right now that are exemplifying that, like aren't, aren't shying away from that, even if it's like Kehlani in her in her bedroom self-recording or most recently, and this one is high production still and everybody saw it, but Billie Eilish's video came out for Therefore I Am, which I was annoyed by the title at first because, you know. But she's 19, and that's, like, the first time you read about Descartes and your mind, like, blows up, and you're like, oh, shit, okay, let me write a song about it. But um, she, um, you know, has that song, Therefore I Am, and it's her running around the mall, and no one is there, and she's, you know, going to a Wetzel's Pretzels and stealing a pretzel and eating it and chugging a soda because she's so, like, you know, carefree and light and fuck you guys and all of your your opinions about her body which i love that i'm not mocking her i love it it is it is it's fun it's cute she's in she's dressed in like a pensioner's outfit <laughs> like who did arts and crafts and like spilled glitter oh on that herself, cardigan i want it that's usual and it's and it's billy so it's probably gucci and it's probably too damn expensive but that it's cardigan probably six thousand dollars yeah i came away from the video being like i want the cardigan <laughs> Yo, the way she dresses is actually impeccable. Like, I really do enjoy her her artistic choices and love the video. It was a lot of fun. Um, I rarely say this, but Jimmy Fallon did a funny parody of it. <laughs> so I enjoyed that, too. But we were watching that. Also, I want to say it's at the Glendale Galleria, which if you're not familiar with L.A. mall culture. So the main one that you probably heard of is The Grove, which is in the middle of the, t- the town. It's where it's right right next to where they film like Dancing with the Stars and stuff. It's just like the hub of L.A. Mario Lopez mm. hosts Access from there like every morning. Correct. Correct. This mall, the Glendale Galleria, is next to the Americana, and it, you know that's like an LA suburb, mostly oh, yeah. Armenian. This is where, like, the LA mall people. This is where we love to go. You can enjoy yourself. The fountain is way bigger. You know, you can really, really wild out to some. It's not unusual by Tom Jones or whatever mm-hmm. they're playing. Happy hour at Cheesecake Factory. You've got it. You just go crazy. Yeah, we are truly <laughs> at some point in culture headed for a Ford versus Ferrari esque film about the Galleria versus the Americana. Oh please. <laughs> there, there's. There, I love. Um, I mean, well. R.I.P. Um, to me loving anything on Twitter, but um, I loved the um, account that was Americana at the brand memes. Oh, it's still there. It it's still comparing hilarious. the Americana yeah. to the Galleria, and Billy was like tweeting some of those memes before the video, uh, and now we know why. Um, but speaking of music videos, I also saw Little Nas X's video for holiday oh all the stops were pulled out for that video truly, every single stop was pulled out truly looks like the polar express <laughs> oh no <laughs> so 95 percent accurate tom hanks face is in it yeah which yeah. by the way i forgot tanache was in that movie but she recently responded to someone on twitter who said that the movie was bad and she was like i'm in it and i agree wow i, I do think <laughs> it's a, i do think it's a terrible that's movie a- that's about nothing it's like you yeah. should believe in Santa because <laughs> I thought it was a I thought it was a warning about interracial crushes. <laughs> <laughs> we already have the Bachelorette, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Little Nas did pull out all the stops. You know, it is a very expensive video, a lot of CGI, so you could tell like that's sort of how they filmed it during COVID. Probably they probably weren't 
all that much Mm -hmm. next to each other. It has a really funny line in it. I might bottom on the low, but I top shit. You know, he's a barb. Of course, he's going to have lines like that. But I will say this continues the trend of Little Nas X songs that are like hummable, but not really anything that I'm going to remember. And it's so interesting. He's like pop star, but rappers respect me in the song too. And I'm like, so are you a pop star or are you going to be a rapper? I mean, I know you can be a mix of both. Like all the girls are doing it. But if you're like rapping, I would expect like to at least have some like memorable bars from you at this point. Right. And if you're a pop star, like Old Town Road was like a moment, but I'm not still listening to that, you know? I think Little Nas has yet to really have a song pop for me that I feel like I still mm-hmm. want to listen to. Mm. I love him like, a hey, lot. Hey, Panini, per- don't you be a meanie. <laughs> That's the you best like that. one, to be honest. But <laughs> Honestly, you he know. makes Fortnite soundtrack music, and I feel like we just have to accept that. I don't, <laughs> until he gets to a grown point, like, Lil Nas isn't going to be making stuff that we're going to listen to. He's ma- releasing a children's book in, like, a month. He's cornered the area that he wants to be in, I think. It took me, like, way too many beats to remember what the fuck Fortnite was. I'm over here being like, you, have, <laughs> have you checked out this new pop star, Rosemary Clooney? Like, I'm way <laughs> Guys, the Model T is out. The Billy song, by the way, is great, though. And I do want to uh, apologize to Lewis um, because I will now admit that the bomb thing was not good. You, oh, you don't fucking say. <laughs> no, Speaking of things you can't no. fucking hum, my God. Three Zanny. I'm sorry. I defended that with all my might. I, like, truly tried to drag Lewis for attempting to say it wasn't good. And it's bad. Something about an an, an ambient bop or, like, a... <laughs> Girl, but, uh, it, it is a clonopin. Yeah. Yeah, those are some of my favorite jokes I think of ever. Yeah. Forever, forever dumb. I mean, yeah. if your problem with the Skyfall theme was too fast, this is the one for you. <laughs> mm. Oh, uh, uh, you, you, do you know what I um, saw this week okay. through a one-day Netflix thing through a friend was uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom with uh, Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman in his This final is racism. Uh, no, it's, that you've seen it before me. Yeah, how about that? This is the second time <laughs> this, we're this talking adaptation. about a Black Bottom. <laughs> um, luckily, they both give spellbinding performances. What's surprising is I didn't realize, I had never read uh, the play, the August Wilson play, mm-hmm. that Viola Davis's part is actually smaller than you remember, and uh-huh. even though she's the title character. And now, compared to the movie she did win for, Fences, which was kind of a sly lead role in a supporting category, she may now win a lead Oscar for something that's secretly supporting. Anyway, her gaming these categories, I support it. <laughs> I, think, I think people who are obsessed with Oscar categorization and where performances belong, it's, it's not in the spirit of the show for me, actually, because there are no hard and fast rules for what is supporting, and you have to redefine it per movie. But um, that movie got me set off on watching a bunch of older movies I hadn't seen that are based on plays. And I realized the reason I like movies like Fences and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is, one, because it's so focused on like monologues and stuff, you just get pure performances. It's just like distilled performances. It's not about anything else, CGI or anything. And secondly, it kind of makes you feel like you're watching an old movie. You know, it, 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 senses, it feels like this is how movies were in 1951. You know, movies like Born Yesterday or uh, Death of a Salesman or A Streetcar Named Desire. It was just like four people in a room looking upset, bringing up the past, looking at the door when someone arrives, 
you know, things like that. <laughs> the drama of small moments. So I really recommend everybody check it out uh, once it comes out for that reason. But I, I want to say that I checked out Death of a Salesman 1951 with uh, Frederick March, who had won two Oscars before then. Check in on some grim old theater. Check in on like people missing out on the American dream. That feels exactly right to me right now. Check that. And Mildred Dunnick in it, who plays uh, Linda Lohman, his wife. Fabulous. An all-time performance that no one talks about. I'm a Death of a Salesman stan. Arthur Miller is such a interesting playwright to think about now, uh, mostly because, yeah, a lot of his stuff is about the American dream and white men basically scamming to accomplish it uh, and destroying their families in the process, <laughs> particularly that, All My Sons, All my sons um, which yes. I saw which I saw on the West End uh, last year with Sally, Sally Field. Field yes. And yes. we got uh, a version of it here with Annette Benning soon after. If I don't, yes, if I which, 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 which was dragged in the reviews. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and also low-key rude on the people producing it on Broadway because if the West End one was successful, it probably would have transferred to Broadway. But then instead they were like, let's get in on this. Um, but I do love that show. And I love – Arthur Miller's a lot like – August Wilson, um, who wrote Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. You know, both of those playwrights sort of write about um, chasing what America has to offer. Of course, August mm. Wilson does his 10-play cycle about Pittsburgh, you know, and so it's like a different decade um, in the 20th century. And that, of course, is about the different decades in which black people have tried to make the American dream happen for them. You know, my favorite is Joe Turner's Come and Gone, but Ma Rainey is such a smaller show that like I'm so excited to see it because it takes place in one room basically the studio and it just really encompasses everything about like music and um, black people trying to make it in the music industry and sort of like what they all do to achieve that so um, revisit old playwrights about um, writing about the American dream in that time period because a lot of it's still apt <laughs> yeah you know what I will quickly say about um, August Wilson also is he actually reminds me of Aaron Sorkin and that you watch it and there are speech patterns that come up again and again that remind me only of other things he has written. You know, like uh-huh. a character will say something and then say it in reverse. And by that, I mean, he'll be like, I can't be doing that. That's something I can't be doing. <laughs> Always. It's like one and then the other. <laughs> when you stand in front of somebody, Lewis, and you hold your hands out to them, you hold your dreams in your hand. And when you clasp it, those dreams, they try to never escape that hand. But the minute, the minute you open up your hand, those dreams are gone forever. <laughs> That's just me coming up with that August Wilson monologue oh. on the fly. <laughs> what? <laughs> I literally was about to be like, radio like, golf? That's a yeah. quote. <laughs> I've been standing right in front of you, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I'd hate to say it. Uh, what beautiful things we all uh, digested this week. We almost Music got videos. to culture. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> This is culture, lowbrow and brilliant, as New York Magazine called me. When? I was in the approval matrix. Oh, I saw that. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah, thinking, yeah, why yeah. did I see yeah. that? Oh, it's because you fucking put it on your Instagram. That's why I saw it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> My first it's all he re- has. It's all he has <laughs> left. It's truly all I have left, Louis. Instagram. Let me have it. Instagram is all I have. I'm going to start selling fit tees. And um, I'm going to, like, hit up Reese Witherspoon and be like, how can I shift to um, a 
white woman lifestyle brand. Yeah, get some Fabletics <laughs> going. Yeah. <laughs> What's your goop? What's your version mm, of goop? Um, Gooped. <laughs> <laughs> Apostrophe D. Baby, <laughs> baby Mon- Monique, Monique Hart might try to kill me. <laughs> uh, all right, when we're back, we'll be joined by Rachel Bloom. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Our guest today is known for creating and starring in one of my favorite television shows, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She is an Emmy and Golden Globe winner, but you couldn't settle for just being a triple threat, huh? You had to go and write a book, and now your essay collection, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are, is out now. Please welcome Rachel Bloom. Hello. 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 Hi, Rachel. <laughs> Such a pleasure to have you. It's an honor to be here and also to be here with Lucille Bluth. Oh, sure. <laughs> our, our podcast producer puts up a picture of Jessica Walter and it inspires all our guests constantly. Also, you guys can't see this. Rachel Bloom is wearing like purple shades with a matching jumpsuit. It's so Janis Joplin in a not contrived mm-hmm. way. It's really exciting. <laughs> I was told this was going to be on video. I wanted to look cool. (laughs) You do. You do. Absolutely. And very excited to have you here because, as I said, um, I adored Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Truly. Thank you. Truly loved how you um, Russian dolled a um, show about trauma and mental health into um, a CW um, comedic musical. I'm as astonished as you are. It's still, <laughs> it still makes like no sense that we were allowed to do what we did on the CW. It, it all makes no sense. It, it feels like I'm in some contrived simulation that like a teenage drama kid alien has created. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it does. I want to ask <laughs> you too the process of creating that show um, because I've I, what I loved about it is that. If you just watch like the first season and particularly the pilot, it seems just like a normal rom-com character where you're like, yes, of course she quits her job, moves to West Covina for a guy, you know, like then you get deeper into it and you're like, oh, this is why she did those things. This dives into her psyche. And was that always on your mind from the beginning of creating it? Or was that something that you each season were sort of like, this is where we're going to go with her uh, next. Because to me, it seems like that is the perfect way to sort of write a long-running drama comedy like that to, you know, have that plan from the beginning and plant seeds, but have the audience think it's something else when they start it. It was a mix. So when Aline Brosh McKenna and I created it, um, we knew we were going to do a fucked up, rom-com we knew we were going to take a lot of tropes of romantic comedies which had been her bread and butter writing screenplays for years she wrote i mean devil wears prada is not a rom-com but you know it's it's in that 
in that vein. Um, it's a classic. Dresses. And, it, and it's a classic also. <laughs> um, I, I think of some of the lines in that movie and I can't believe I know the person who wrote them. It's, uh, but I also can. I also can. I'm like, yeah, I believe that came out of her brain. Um, so she, that had been kind of her bread and butter. And so we'd always wanted, we knew we were going to upend the rom-com. And so in the, in the pilot, uh, she's been up all night. Um, the first shot you see of adult Rebecca Bunches. She's been up all night. She's Googling how long can a person go without sleep. She takes out, assumedly, like a, a Xanax or an Ativan after she gets fired from her job, and she's like, breaking case of emergency. So there there are these like little hints, and she's throwing her pills in the sink. Um, we knew she was troubled. So we always knew this is going to be a fucked up romantic comedy from her point of view, and we're going to kind of take some of the tropes of fatal attraction, um, but do it from the female perspective. So we always knew she was going to have problems. We hadn't honed in on the diagnosis of what those problems were. And as the character grew, because we based some of her problems on things that I had gone through, things that we like our friends had gone through. And so it was this kind of, um, it started out as this, this hybrid of, of, of anxiety and depression, which is what I had been going through. But then basically as the stories became more and more outlandish because we were doing a fucked up rom-com and, and a comedy, we needed to find, okay, well, if she's going to go do this, this is a heightened version of something that we could maybe see ourselves doing, but we wouldn't go this far. We kind of backed into a diagnosis. And so it, be, it became clear, though, I think end of season two that she had borderline to both of us. But we sent a couple because there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap with personality disorders and things like anxiety and, and depression. And so um, so what we did was we sent three major episodes to um, therapists that we found through the Writers Guild, because if you're doing research for anything, be it mental illness on your TV show. Uh, when we had the character Daryl come out as bi, uh, the Writers Guild connected us with a rep at Glad just to make mm -hmm. sure that like we were doing it right. So we sent the episodes to different therapists and we basically said, look, based on these episodes, what diagnosis would you have? Mm. And we talked to, uh, I believe it was three therapists and the consensus was borderline. Because you know, I think what was interesting, and I always knew this from my own mental health experience, but creating this character, I learned even more that all these diagnoses, all the, they're just tools to help you feel better. It's a very imprecise science. We were talking to one of the doctors and they said, we think, you know, this character seems like she has borderline personality disorder, also with PTSD. But, you know, in the next DSM, we might not even call it borderline personality disorder anymore because borderline mm -hmm. is almost kind of um, an archaic term at this point, like on the border of of what? Mm -hmm. um, and so we got some also like potential bipolar, too, which diagnosing this character was such a microcosm of how hard it is to get a, a diagnosis sometimes. Because you're mm -hmm. going through a thing. We, we were kind of writing it by feel. We were basing it again off of like things that I had felt, things that Aline had felt, things that we had seen our friends go through. And so it all felt authentic. But when you actually go into a diagnosis, it starts to get a little more wiggly. And especially a personality disorder, those are much harder to diagnose and they're much harder to treat. Mm -hmm. Something that was fascinating in your book, by the way, is the story of how in the shortest window of time, you had a TV series. You really thought it was debt. Please explain this because it's such a blitz. And I, I can't think, I can't compare it to any other TV show inception I can think of, which, you know, obviously things happen unconventionally sometimes, but yours was so fast-tracked, it's wild. 
It's truly bizarre. And I wrote the part in the book, I really spell out not only how my TV show got made, but how TV shows get made in general. Because before I started pitching TV shows, I really had no idea how it happened. In fact, I'm still confused about the difference between a studio and a network. I still don't understand. Um, (laughs) Likewise, I totally agree. It's always confounding to me. Yes. I don't understand. Like, wait, we were on the CW, but CBS is our studio. It, It makes no sense to me. Yeah. So what happened was we were a, we sold the pitch to Showtime and they had basically said when they bought the pitch, cause it was competitive, other people wanted to buy it. They said, if we don't turn this into a filmed pilot, we will give you money, which is a good sign that they want to make the pilot. So sure enough, we, we made the pilot with them. We had written some other scripts for them. It was looking good. And then they passed. Who, who knows why? M- many, many, um, many reasons. So then we had what so many people in Hollywood have was a, a, a passed on pilot. And we had this, you know, this uh, 30 minute piece that we were really proud of. And then we sent it to every other network that had passed before the networks that had wanted it before. And everyone said no, which makes sense. TV is very competitive. And the way Aline phrased it, it's like, You've been in a marriage and you're getting divorced and then you're saying to random people, oh, my God, my husband's great. You should marry him right now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we barely know him. What are you talking about? So we took a meeting with the CW. Aline had the idea to send it to the CW because Jane the Virgin had just premiered. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, we'd never thought to send it to a broadcast network. It was an incredibly filthy, weird pilot. And we had a meeting with the CW. It was great. And they were like, we're considering it for, uh, you know, off season, potentially, if you can rewrite the pilot to be an hour. And we kind of just got their notes done quickly, even though they said no rush to get the pilot in. And we got the notes done. It was very lucky we did because we found out that all of their fall pilots had come in. They didn't like any of their fall pilots. They had our pilot and we got ordered to series. So, but that was like, uh, two weeks after our meeting with them. So we we went f- in a couple of days. I went from thinking I had a basically dead pilot with Showtime. Like the CW meeting went well, but who knows if they were going to consider it for off season. Like that wasn't mm. a thing the CW did. I went from thinking I had a dead pilot to like going on a plane to New York to announce the show at Upfronts, which are the big ad announcement for TV shows. It was lightning fast because... I went through the process of mourning the show and thinking the show was dead. I went back to my old job at Robot Chicken. In fact, I was in the Robot Chicken writer's room when I found out the show got ordered to series. I had fully uh, gotten over my hubris of thinking I was going to be a Showtime star and been like, (laughs) well, it's back to square one. I have this really cool pilot that I can show people at general meetings if they ever want to see it. It was just so fast. And it really... I, it didn't really sink in everything that had happened until like probably the, the summer break after we filmed the entire first season, because it was just from the moment the show was ordered, it was go, 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 go. I was filming constantly, writing constantly. And then the Golden Globes happened in the middle of that. And it seemed like some weird fever dream. The idea of being let down that you wouldn't be a Showtime star. Like I could have been one of the United States of Tara. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to be such a big deal. Well, they like did this whole. You and Emmy Rossum. Oh, I know. <laughs> just, just lunching together. <laughs> but she's robbed. I feel like she did. There's famously known for not getting uh, nominations for that role, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's been on for thirty. <laughs> I got years. that. It was a shame. <laughs> Less. There. Okay. There you go. 
I don't know. Is you know. we got the Joan Cusack <laughs> win though, so all is forgiven. Great. <laughs> bringing weeds back. Did you see that? Oh right. I, I'm an Elizabeth Perkins stan, so we can talk about that too. But oh, she's so good on that show. Mm-hmm. That is that is another Showtime thing, though. You know, like Weeds. I feel like was on for so long, and Weeds also was six different shows while it was on TV. Mm-hmm. I remember I had an acting general meeting with Showtime. This is like 12 years ago. And we were talking about Showtime shows and they were like, the thing I love about our shows is like, you never know what's going to happen. It's one show and then it's another show. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I want in my uh, TV shows. Sure. I want to be watching one show and then, oh, it's another show. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, hire me. <laughs> Weeds was truly set in Amsterdam at one point. There was a lot going on. She was a, a, a maid at a hotel. She was in Mexico at one point. In Mexico. Right? She killed the Mexican drug dealer. It was the, yeah. She hooked yeah. up with Mark Paul Gosseler. I remember that. He was very sexy. Yeah, a lot going on there. Yeah, um, a, lot <laughs> a lot happening on Weeds. <laughs> um, in your book, by the way, um, I want to thank you for maybe giving one of the funniest um, Harry Potter fanfics. Oh my that God! I've thank ever you. read, uh, and also especially now that we are post finding out that um, J.K. Rowling is a Dementor. Um, oh no! What was it like being such a you know we're the same generation you know like you're such a big Harry Potter fan you are writing. Harry Potter um, fanfic into your book that sort of represents, you know, like um, you as a theater kid. And, you know, it's like it's a it's a really fun. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for people, but it's a really fun, just like short story about Harry running into the theater kids at <laughs> Hogwarts. And your writing this, it's coming out. At what point in the process of this coming out did the J.K. Rowling is transphobic shit happen? And then you were like, fuck. So I turned in the first draft, the the kind of main draft of this book, the day before I was in, induced. Um, so this isn't like late March. And nothing had happened then. You know, we were just going into COVID lockdown. And so when we came out of COVID lockdown, the thing that... Uh, saved me because it was a really intense, it's a whole, I talk about it in the book, but I gave birth. My daughter was in the NICU. My songwriting partner died a week after my daughter was born. And the thing that helped me was I was going back and rereading Harry Potter (laughs) because that's what I do in times of um, crisis or confusion or strife. So I was a kind of immersed in Harry Potter and I'd wanted to write this short story for a long, long, long time. And I was so, and I didn't write the, even shorts. I wrote the short story way before that, but it just made me even more excited that I was publishing a Harry Potter short story. And then I got an idea for a Harry Potter podcast that I wanted to host with my friend Alana because she and I were always texting about Harry Potter. Like she and I have a theory that Lord Voldemort is, uh, killed Princess Diana because <laughs> the timeline actually lines up really well. I right. do love that in the short story, you do bring up the fact that this book is set in the fucking 90s, and there's never really any reference to the 90s. I remember being shocked um, early on as a fan when I was like, oh, wait, this is set when? Yeah, it's set. it starts in 1992. And so <laughs> all of these very specific 1990s things, the fact that they don't talk about Princess Diana in the book or the royals at all is actually like, yeah, they're wizards, but they're still 
citizens of the UK, they'd still be like, oh my God, can you believe about Charles and Camilla? But like no one talks about that. Um, and then I also had a movie idea that was uh, inspired by Harry Potter. And then this stuff happens with JK Rowling. And I just, I don't know. I was still so proud of the story that I wrote. At that point, the book was kind of locked. So mm. it, it would have been a thing to take the story out. And also I kind of took a cue from MuggleNet, which is, you know, the number one Harry Potter fan site and, and the Twitter account that they kept being MuggleNet. They just, they unfollowed JK Rowling on Twitter. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay. If right now the kind of fandom is separating the two, which is, you know, look, that's a very complicated thing to mm-hmm. separate the author from the work because she wrote the books. I was like, I'm going to go ahead with the story. And also I worked really hard on the story and it had been a story mm-hmm. I wanted to write for 10 years. Look, it's a really confusing situation. And there's so many levels to the entire situation because she said, you know, in that essay, if trans people were being um, oppressed, I would march with you. Like there, there are all of these um, nooks and crannies and, and, and gray areas that don't take away you know, from the overall hurtful, harmful messaging. But yeah, it's really hard. Um, it should be said that your book is largely about the concept of normal and when you're in middle school, like dealing with the pressures of being around kids who are horrible to you. I, I love right in the opening chapter when you talk about everybody claims they are bullied and you're like, no, I was like next level. <laughs> and then you how, you how you bullied people about how you were more bullied than them. Super, super funny. But it is among the most candid retellings of, that part of somebody's life that I've read, one. And two, also, you really deserve credit for filling in the complete life of a 12-year-old because while you have, like, this one adversarial relationship with these horrible kids at school, you also talk about, like, just the weird thoughts that fill your mind otherwise. And I, I mean this apart from the OCD section, which is a very specific kind of overwhelming thought, but just, like, spending all your time watching, like, Ethel Merman and just, like, you know, like, the, the dorky, like you know, obsessions like theater kids, like all of us were really into. So you really deserve credit for that. That said, you give away so much about your life. And I wonder how much of it was daunting to actually write. Were you writing some of these or revisiting some of these, you know, crazy compulsions you had as a, as a tween and thinking this is ready for prime time. Were you always ready for this moment? No, it took me a long time to think about that time in my life. Um, it, for a long time, I, I didn't tell anyone. It was kind of my like big, I don't know, big secret and big shame. I remember the first time I told a therapist about it. And then I moved to LA, got another therapist. I told that therapist. So the more I talked about it, the less it uh, felt shameful and the less it hurt. And I talked about it a lot with my, with my current psychiatrist. And I talked about it with my husband and close friends of mine. So at this point, I had kind of workshopped sharing that information with people in my life And I told some of the story on my friend's podcast, like I have told enough to where it didn't feel dangerous that that I would regret writing that down. That that was my big goal of the book, as vulnerable as I was going back with a fine tooth comb and being like, okay, I have to stand behind every single word in this book. I don't want to have the book published and then regret that I said something about someone or maybe set a personal fact that I don't want to talk about in interviews. So I was very meticulous with that. And I, I do, I stand behind every word in the book. <laughs> I mean, ho- hopefully I'm like, oh God, is there anything I don't? Um, but there were things about like ex-boyfriends that I had in there that I took out 
that just felt like, well, if they were to read this, this is rather callous. And I want to be able, if they were ever to call me, which they probably won't, I want to be able to say, no, I want I stand by everything I said. Mm -hmm. I think that as writers and performers, uh, like what really just um, hit me right there is you saying that you talked about some things enough where it felt less dangerous, you know? And I feel like... Um, I relate to the idea of wanting to share um, traumas, wanting to share um, moments in, like reading the moments with relationships in the book um, where you just think about the fact that like the Rebecca Bunch stuff too in the show, you know, like we all have those tendencies, you know, and especially if you were dealing with some sort of um, mental illness, you know, like the, these are things that happen um, when just human beings are trying to relate to each other um, and date one another, et cetera. And I feel like as writers and performers, we have moments where like, you'll be on a podcast, you'll say something, you'll like do like a stand up show or like a storytelling thing. You'll lightly say something. And I think that we're in a unique position where you can lightly share things until you feel comfortable talking about them in a way that um, I, I think this book will be very helpful to people reading who aren't performers or writers too, you know, because it gives them an avenue of how can I get to a place where I can share things that might scare me, you know? Thank you. That, that was my, and that was some of my goal when I was writing it is I wish that I had read that when I was 12, 13, 14. I, I wish that I had read someone else being painfully, I wish I, I had read more people being painfully vulnerable, especially about the specific or regarding like the kind of, you know, obsessions that I went through. Cause I think it, it would have helped me be vulnerable. And that's something I learned also from doing crazy X and especially doing live shows and meeting fans. People respond to vulnerability with more vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's this lovely connection that you have with people who are watching your work and taking in your work. And I, that really, that appreciation of that really grew for me for the four years that we did crazy X. Yeah. The book is so funny. I just want to say, by the way, it's Thank it, you. as much as it's a purgation, you, you always find a way to like follow it up with just an amazing joke or an amazing reference. I'm a very reference oriented person. So I thank you for that too. Mm. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thank you. That means so much to me. Cause it's, it's scary to write a book and it's nice to have smart people enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, and also as a theater person myself, you know, I'm like, I love, you know, just hearing about other people growing up, like your middle school, high school, and then college, like relationships with performing and shows and like the reactions and like going to Tish, which I also did, you know, um, right. no one's heard me bring that up on this show. All right. No. Uh, what, what, <laughs> wait, what, what studio? Uh, I went to dramatic writing, but for grad. Oh, yeah, fancy. Yeah. Yeah, seventh floor. I spent a lot of time on that seventh <laughs> floor. My sketch group, we would we would write uh, in the offices because we had a majority of a majority of the people in my sketch group were dramatic writing majors. Mm -hmm. so I spent a lot of time there. Yeah, yeah, those creaky wooden floors. I miss it. I miss it. I do too. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I don't. I, well, I, I miss the I miss the floors. I always said to myself that I would. I think there was one time that I took a a phone call in the Tish common room, like two years after I graduated, because I still had my student ID. I always told myself I would go in the Tish common room and take a bunch of important phone calls <laughs> just to feel full circle. And then you're in that common room. You're like, Ugh, this place is noisy. Never mind. Yeah, it is. The I was I was I actually was in New York um, 
a few weeks ago, uh, and I met up with a friend who was visiting from um, San Francisco. We were both happened to be there, and we were talking about um, having gone to Tish at that time. And it was so funny thinking about now as an adult, like actually trying to work um, in the industry. You think about what you thought about professors at the time, oh my and gosh. I think I think you you always think that like you think. Well, this person isn't successful. They're sitting here teaching me, you know, uh, or certain. You would think that about certain professors, and now you go back and you look at like the things they were doing or what they're doing now, and you're like, "Wow, I really wish that I were doing what they're doing because they are very <laughs> successful uh, in terms of you know, like they're working in the industry, you know, and you have really no concept of what that is when you're a kid." It's so funny. School. I thought the opposite. I was because I was so impressed by every professor. Mm-hmm. And then I think about some of them, like the credits that I was impressed by, some of them, not all of them, but mm-hmm. I think about some of them, their credits I was impressed by, and I'm like, oh, what? That's <laughs> they- One season of Becker, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my husband has the bet. My husband went to Gallatin. Here's mm. a fun fact about me. I have only ever had sex with men who went to NYU. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I've never. You should, now you should be diagnosed. Yeah. I know. I, know. I have never. I, I really think there should be like the Rachel Bloom dorm room for losing your virginity uh, to commemorate that. I've only ever had sex with guys who went to NYU. And, and in fact, um, only one of them didn't go to Tisch. And that's my husband. Um, he went to Gallatin, but he took a class this is not my story to tell, but it's so he took a class where the professor had written like one episode of one sitcom in the early 90s, but was teaching a television writing class and became obsessed with the class was centered around. You had to write a spec script of I Love Lucy guest starring Alicia Keys. What? <laughs> and I think what? back, I think the backstory was that this professor maybe had a friend of a friend who kind of knew Alicia Keys's agent and thought, okay, if I like give Alicia Keys, I could maybe take one of the scripts written by my students and be like, see Alicia Keys, I should create this TV show for you. But that was the whole class. Every single person had to write an I Love Lucy spec script where the guest was Alicia Keys. And you couldn't acknowledge that there was maybe time travel. You just had to be like, Alicia Keys. And, and, and she's playing herself. Yeah, she's playing herself. Like she, it's, she's, it's, she's not like the new nanny or something. No, okay. No, no. It had to be uh, Lucy and Ricky Ricardo reacting to Alicia Keys. That is that is mental illness. That is extremely <laughs> crazy. I don't know. God, I wish you could find his spec. Because everyone had this assignment. And I think you had to just... Not acknowledge. I think it was the idea that that uh, Lucy and Ricky. It was like the Simpsons that they mm. were, you know, a thousand years old. But but the 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 show takes place in the continuous present, theoretically. Oh my gosh! Okay. So obviously, you have to end it with Alicia. Can I be in the show? <laughs> <laughs> You know I me. Mean? I would have written a Lucy Desi comedy hour. It would have been Tulula Bankhead and Alicia Keys. I would have passed that with flying colors. That sounds great. I would love to see Alicia in one of the new Scooby Doo mysteries. I think that could work. Oh, Harlem Globetrotters, Cass Elliot, and Alicia yeah. Keys. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here, Rachel. Uh, and thank you for writing such a wonderful book. I'm sure people will really enjoy it, and I can't wait to see it when you eventually turn into a stage show. 
Oh, thank you. Oh, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Oh, thank you for that idea. I will. Uh, thank you. I am so glad to be doing press about the book and not still writing the book. It is that that is one of the many reasons it is a delight to be here. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Last week, Vogue revealed their December cover star. Per usual, it was a hot young star in a beautiful dress. The only reason we have to talk about this is because it was a man. Oh! Harry Styles, Mm-mm. the first Mm-mm. man to grace the cover of Vogue solo. And of course, that bitch, Candace Owens, uh. pulled the hot comb out of her hair and <laughs> hopped online to, to voice... Her comments on the cover. And also, Ben Shapiro. Truly, truly a um, team rocket of the internet. And also somebody we can really trust to to teach us about youth culture, pop music. So I'm really glad he jumped in. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, Miss Owens went on this (laughs) diatribe about how the dress portends the collapse of Western civilization and that we need manly men in our society or we will fall apart. Also, Marxism, uh, (laughs) she tweeted, there is no society that can survive without strong men. The East knows this. In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack. Bring back manly men. And a follow-up tweet that said, since I'm trending, I'd like to clarify what I meant when I said bring back manly men. I meant bring back manly men. Okay. (laughs) Um, Terms like toxic masculinity were created by toxic females. Real women don't do fake feminism. Sorry, I'm not sorry. We all know that I am remiss to talk about this half on Keep It in the first place, but... It's about Harry Styles, and I do love my baby. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it. Um, Well, first of all, this fucking bitch. I'm mad that she has me run into the defense of this white man that I'm already like, are you queer baiting? Are you not? What are you doing? Even though you look great, and I'm going to let you figure it out, and you can self-identify whenever you want, Harry. I love you. But Candace. Shut up. We don't say shit when you fry your edges off every single week. We sit quietly. We allow that to happen. So you're not about to say shit when this man puts on a skirt. And also, that's a British man. That's a hop, skip, and a jump away from Scottish. That's a kill. That doesn't even impress me that much. You know, like, put a bustier on. Put some fishnet stockings on. Real, if you want to do this, do this, Harry. But, like, this is this is light work. This is light work. Like... And it's been, like, for all of his career, Harry's been so inspired by Freddie Mercury and by all of these men who have gone out of their way to, like, dress any way they want and to be icons in that way. Like, 
This is not new. This is not new. In fact, the other pop boys need to speed up. Conan Gray, I'm looking at you. Hurry up. <laughs> Put a dress on. I was going to say, it almost is just out of the male solo artist playbook at this point. With the exception maybe of Elvis Presley, in terms of if you're a pop star with any amount of, sorry to use this word, swagger, <laughs> there is almost always an androgynous element to what you do. Yeah. The entire internet figured this out immediately, but like, go to David Bowie, to Prince, to you, you mentioned Freddie Mercury, you, Elton John, like years and years, men like yeah. fuck with norms a little bit. I will say like, I feel like Harry Styles did this specifically because it would ex- super excite his fans and then ex- rile precisely a woman like this who only lives to notice a man is wearing mm. a different exactly. silhouette. Is this exactly. an essay yet? And in a way for that, I am actually grateful because what it does is because he's a celebrity and a straight celebrity, someone like her has the nerve to say something about it. But like, if there's like, for instance, queer kids in America dressing like that, she's probably not going to step up to those people. Exactly. So someone like him pulls it out and then we can talk about it in the case of him as opposed to like ruining these fucking kids' lives uh, and putting them in her crosshairs. And that's hypocritical too in the way that like, we don't know how Harry Styles identifies. He has been in One Direction since he was three months old. He's had media training. He's super, super quiet about his his world and his life. And I mean, I say this as someone who was, was has been avidly following Harry Styles and his potential gayness since I was a child. I'm obsessed with this. And I, I think that it's unfair that he doesn't get to represent himself without claiming queerness. I know that there's also, you know, uncomfortable, maybe he's trying to get attention. Maybe he's trying to use the queer image right now for success, but he's like 26 or something. Let's let baby figure that out in the next few years. And also, by the way, it's just fucking fabric. Like whatever. Like yeah. you, you may, you yeah. may wear frilly things and enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> As myself Assange would say. I've said this before, but Kanye be wearing dresses. Ka- Kanye wears shirts that are so long they're dresses. And nobody <laughs> says anything. Like, he had a kilt phase not, too. He did, know? he did. It was like, you know, and it was tan, but <laughs> also it says something that Miss Candace Owens didn't have anything to say about um young thug in his dress phase. <laughs> maybe maybe it just shows that she don't she don't know what's going on in black culture. No, that's that's another thing. <laughs> She's not paying attention. She's not paying attention. Also the hilariousness of bring back manly men. Where do you want them brought? Jason Momoa is here. <laughs> what yeah. do you want? <laughs> he exists. Joe Manganiello is here, Truly. okay? And playing we Dungeons have... and Dragons, okay? <laughs> we all we have, have our Monte Rhodes. You know, there mm. are plenty of manly Come men. On. People who always say bring back manly men just like sound so pressed and it's like, girl, talk to your husband. <laughs> right, are you not getting okay. laid? What is the actual issue? You're here? projecting. Yeah. <laughs> play go play the Lone Ranger with him, okay? <laughs> How about that? How about you be Jane, he be Tarzan? <laughs> I think we should bring back swashbuckling men. Give me a man with a, a long sword and like a, a a rakish goatee who's who's like <laughs> Hit me with his cutlass aboard a, a, a pirate ship. This is what Meg Thee Stallion meant when she wrote Captain Hook. She See? wasn't talking about that. She was talking about bring back the pirates. <laughs> uh, on a side note, I do want to say that I have uh, recently been like turning on to Mr. Styles. You know, I've enjoyed the music. 
Uh, I like the beat. <laughs> uh, I think that he has been really entertaining. You know, I love Watermelon Sugar. I love the video for Golden, you know? So um, he's truly, really doing it post One Direction in a way that mm-hmm. I was... The other girls aren't. You know, Niall I, who? Zane who? Where'd they go? I was very much Zane Hive. I was very much Liam. You know, they were releasing like hip-hop adjacent bops. But Liam just went from like dad energy to like I'm gonna fuck you on the dance floor. It's like no, you're not, sir. No, you're not. Wait, put it away. Wait, Niall did the This Town song, right? I did think that yeah, was pretty yeah. good. I thought that was pretty good. I will say I feel like Harry Styles is somebody who I'm constantly reading profiles about why I should find him very cool, and I'm not saying he's not, but he's not a really gregarious celebrity. Like I'm not. He's not like, for instance, a Kiki Palmer whose personality is extremely apparent to me immediately. So mm-hmm. I always feel like I'm being sold on him as a cool person. I'm like, exactly. I understand. I understand he has like rad um, '70s teen girl hair, mm-hmm. which I support. But beyond that, you know, it's like whatever. Resemble Christy McNichol, you know that's my bag. <laughs> but I, I feel like the skirt thing might be another indicator. Like I'm supposed to find you cool again. Are you cool? I'm. I'm ready to believe it. I'm ready to believe it. I just don't know that I'm there mm-hmm. yet. Well, you know, it, it, Harry has this sort of um, energy that feels like he is being sold to us by like a Hedda Hopper, Luella Parsons. You know, it is. It is very much throwback celebrity in that we don't really know that much about him. Maybe if I dug in the Tumblr. Um, I could see uh, what the fans are really saying about him. But, you know, he came up in One Direction, this huge, huge global boy band. Uh, And then they all split to sort of, like, have to make their own personalities. And Harry's, you know, seems to be, you know, experimenting with his sexuality and, you know, sort of going in this... um, British, um, like, Bowie pop sort of um, phase. And I like his music a lot. I would not say his music stays with me as much as I would want it to to be completely obsessed. Um, but I really do love a handful of Harry's songs. And I'm loving his videos. And I'm loving um, basically what he's delivering. And so I continue to grow as a Harry Styles fan. Uh, but I do agree that um, he's really not present in the way that um some celebrities are you know mm-hmm. like I, I can't mm-hmm. think of funny interviews with him uh there's always profiles like in this one he talks about like being a pescatarian he talks about pilates etc you know but i'm not really like um connecting with him as like a celebrity who i'm i'm like following you know and like know their personality mm-hmm. and they feel like larger than life it feels like very um golden age of Hollywood where, you know, they're, they're telling you um, who this person is and why you are obsessed with him. I do think, though, that he seems universally adored by the people around him. He seems, yes, you know, like, I'm not reading any, like, he has a fucked up personality or he's cocky or whatever. So I, mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I'm on the tarmac towards taking off into fandom. I'm nearly <laughs> there. Yeah. I've just sat down. Okay. On the plane. And I am waiting for... Um, I'm waiting for the stewardess. Um, what magazine do probably, you have? Probably, EW? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, waiting for the stewardess or the gay stewardess mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to come by and um, ask me what I would like to drink. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Aida? Plane has not taken off yet, but where are you, Aida? I am in line at the bathroom stealing 
people's peanuts that they left on their chairs. I've been here for a long time. I'm comfortable, girl. Okay, okay. This is my home. This is my home. This is my. I will also say I want to add to this that like not to call him an industry plant or anything, but remember, One Direction is a Simon Cowell brainchild after X Factor. So a lot of that I still think bleeds into his his life and who he is, and he has been famous for so long that I don't even know if Baby Boy had time to create a personality. Right. Who's to say? I wouldn't blame him. I wouldn't blame him. Yeah. There was a running joke. I mean, when he was coming up, there was a running joke within the Directioner community. Oh, my God. I'm so embarrassed. Where we would just all... Harry starts every sentence with, so basically. And that was it. And that was literally it. And he'd go nowhere and had nothing to say. And it was okay because he had a symmetrical face. Here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) As Biden does. Also, I'm not going to let it slip that you just said in the Directioner community. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's deep. It's deep. I mean, of course, I've like retired from it in the past two or three years, but I, girl, I was obsessed. I'm obsessive, obsessive, just watching videos for hours and hours. I mean, it was right. It intersected right with my adolescence, One Direction becoming popular. I get that. Yeah. God. Listen, as I said, I lean more towards like um, pop, hip hop, um, and then like some kinds of rock in my sensibilities, um, but mm-hmm. mostly like emo rock shit, you know? So like Harry's first album, mm-hmm. the self-titled, was not for me yeah. at all. That kind of um, Travis-ish music, yeah. Yeah, Fine Line, however, is the moment uh, yep. uh, for me. I like the majority of that album, and like I played the fuck out of Adore You. So honestly, I feel like my fandom would be fully there if I'd been able to see him in concert, um, but I will I was never just about to forgive. Say, Harry Styles is amazing live. I will He's never forgive Crooked Media for preventing me from seeing that, oh. because he had you sound a bitter? he had I, I am bitter. <laughs> he had <laughs> a holiday happened? concert last year in Los Angeles, and it was the same night as the Crooked. A holiday party. Oh, wow. I feel so... I continue to feel so bad for you. Granted, I could have just (laughs) skipped that, but that was also the same night as um, Lewis and I, um, four of our friends' joint um, birthday party as well. Oh, true. So Mm -hmm. I did pick our friends over Harry Styles, but uh, whenever concerts are back, I definitely want to see him. Maybe he should do some, like, digital one. Uh, By the way, does anybody Mm -hmm. have any lasting memory of his work in Dunkirk? The movie, I think... Where every actor was hired to be indistinguishable from the next. The the only movie I can think of where I couldn't tell anybody apart. I I have not seen Dunkirk. What? (laughs) We didn't know he was in it. I I knew he was in it. But and I I do actually like Christopher Nolan um, as I love Christopher <laughs> Nolan as much as I dislike his um, male fans online. Mm-hmm. Another reason I'm happy to be off Twitter. Uh, but I have not seen Dunkirk because I am not particularly into war films. Oh yeah, well this one goes the familiar direction. It looks like a war, and it's rendered in olive. So you, <laughs> you know. know who yeah. loved this movie, Ben Shapiro. Uff. And then he was very pressed about Harry Styles um, in the dress. And I think it's because he'd, he'd fallen in love with Mr. Styles in the film and was like, oh, this, this is a man who's like British and he's in a war movie and it's a Christopher Nolan film. And he makes me feel good about um, being Keebler elf size. And now, <laughs> now he's betrayed me. <laughs> in a dress. Well, also, let it be known that that's not real dirt on his face. That's makeup. 
baby. He's wearing makeup <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. Yes. Dresses and makeup. Yes. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Mac Mac brushes. <laughs> <laughs> Watermelon crushes. What's the song? Watermelon sugar crushes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. What are we keeping this week? Lewis, you look antsy. Well, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, Ira, but mine is Twitter-oriented. And I, I can see I the tears streaming already. See. Yes, right. I pretend I do not see. Actually, I do not see. No pretend about it. <laughs> right. You're already achieving it. Um, keep it to this new thing called fleets, which are disappearing tweets that go away after 24 hours. Uh, well, according to Twitter, fleets help people feel more comfortable sharing personal and casual thoughts, opinions, and feelings. Uh, they are a form of Instagram stories, basically, and they appear as little bubbles at the top of the Twitter feed. They're now available to everyone. Wait, this is a real thing on Twitter. Yeah. Not just like, okay, because I thought you were just talking about like the... Jabuki and then Little Nas X too, like love to tweet things and then within like a few hours just delete them. Oh, no. No, see, that's what I support though because I'm saying keep it to fleets because we only do tweets if there's a Jeopardy, we can get fired. You should have to stick behind the thing you tweet or cowardly, in a cowardly way, delete them. There should be no in between. Like a 24-hour tweet, like maybe that would be ideal if we're, say, live tweeting an award show and like 24 hours from now, my comment about what Lily Rabe (laughs) is wearing will make no sense. But otherwise, I do not need Twitter to turn into Instagram because let me tell you something. I think Instagram sucks. I don't like the time I spend there. Nobody is good at it. I don't like what I end up giving a lot of attention to. Whereas on Twitter, I am at least likely to run into some point of view that I wouldn't have normally seen. I'm likely to find something actually funny, which I never do on Instagram. I know Twitter is not nearly as profitable as Instagram, but I just do not need the two to intersect, and it depresses me that they feel they have to. I also just don't like the name Fleets. I think it's a little bit cute. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very Brit-speaky. Yeah, you know, it's better, very bottom-centric, but sure. <laughs> Is that is that a reference to my Insta story? Mm-hmm. No, fleets in general. Oh, I see. The enema. I personally also dislike this in tandem with what they're doing in, not the enema, in, on Instagram, where uh, there's no button anymore for like posting. I don't even know where to find my notifications. It immediately takes me to Reels or it immediately takes me to shopping. Oh my God. That's it. No, Instagram now is like uh, the early days of Wheel of Fortune where you won a round, and then you had to shop for everything on the stage afterwards. And Pat would be like, do you want the Dalmatian statuary for $175? And you're like, no, I don't. I just want to see if my friend made a souffle right. (laughs) Uh, Aida, what is your keep it this week? Okay, so my keep it this week go is another preemptive keep it like I did last week. I just like to be mad in advance. That's me. Plan it. So we know that the the Grammys the Grammys are scheduled to air on January thirty first, twenty twenty one. I don't know if we're gonna be in the house. I don't know if we're gonna be attending the Grammys. Not like I would be, regardless of that. Or if stars are going to be zooming in 
at the rate that we're going, I am sure they'll be zooming in, but this isn't our first rodeo. We've seen this with award shows. Now we're pretty comfortable. Um, so on Sunday, Harvey Mason Jr., record producer, he's worked with the Beyonce and Aretha Franklin and just literally everyone that you can name, is going to be announcing all the Grammy nominations. And I already know I'm going to be mad. Because, first of all, we have Album of the Year, which obvious nominations are going to go to Dua Lipa, you know, for Future Nostalgia. That one's for you, Lewis. Mm. And then Folklore, Taylor Swift, Ira. Fetch the bolt cutters for literally everyone who's been in quarantine. But I just want to make sure that Post Malone does not get a Grammy ever. Ever. And he, 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 <laughs> he could be up for one, either for Record of the Year or for Song of the Year. And every year we get, so he gets nominated, but then just, I don't know, the, the, the invisible hand of justice makes sure that Post Malone does not leave with a Grammy. So I just want to make sure that that keeps happening. Um, we have Best New Artist category that I'm very, very sensitive about because Meg Thee Stallion should be in it. Um, mm -hmm. Morgan Wallen, actually, the country star that we may know from SNL, who <laughs> was supposed to perform but then got literally the boot because he decided to go his little tonky ass maskless out to clubbing. But um, my, my biggest things there is I really want Pop Smoke to get nominated. I should look into it, but I don't know if anyone's been posthumously uh, nominated for a like, Best New Artist category or anything like that. I'm, I don't need Billie Eilish. You've, you have enough. Phineas, sit down. I just Blackpink <laughs> also, please get nominated. There's so much tension here. Sunday is going to be a very stressful day for me. Speaking of Blackpink, I watched Blackpink's documentary for the first time last night, and it is truly I love these girls, but it was watching paint dry. Was it really? Oh, I'm surprised. And, and it is, well, it is probably from YG Entertainment, the label that makes all these uh, K-pop girls. Uh, and the documentary yeah. is basically just the four of them re-watching footage of um, their performances and like their auditions like when they were coming up in like these k-pop camps that they had never seen of each other's before i'm like that's so weird um <laughs> it's like do you four even know each other uh and it's just basically trying to drive home this narrative that k-pop is just pop you know it shouldn't be called k-pop it's pop just like all of global pop uh and then they perform at coachella and i was like cool there's no narrative to it whatsoever. It is just it. truly a commercial for Blackpink. Um, but the most boring commercial mm -hmm. ever. Just give us a concert video. I didn't know that you were so anti-Post Malone, Aida. Not that I am, pr like, I like the song Sunflower. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't stand anything else, really. But, like, what, when did Post Malone begin to ruin your life? His existence in general. Well, he he started to come to rise when I was like a college kid. So I couldn't leave the house without, you know, some frat star with <laughs> that blasting from a corner somewhere. And he he's openly said that he chose hip hop and rap because it was like the easiest genre. And this would be simple for him and easy for him to come up because he's a white person and understands that. And this also, you know, is in concert with... The Grammys never letting best rap album actually be part of the show. It's always part of the pre-show. So that's another part of my keep it is that like just Grammys, fuck y'all. Like please get it together. Uh, hip hop and rap has been probably the largest genre for the past five to ten years. That's my conservative guess. So they just need to figure that out. And Post Malone just adds to the garbage and the sound and the literal noise and rather than just letting good rap and hip hop artists shine through. I would say Post Malone is... I'm I'm gonna be nice here in the in the nicest possible way. Um, Post Boom. Malone is um, 
not going to be people's sexiest man ever. Um, and all of his songs are truly <laughs> about how women didn't want to fuck with him back then. Uh, and now that he's rich, they do. I think it's beautiful. That's yeah. every song. <laughs> Heartwarming, you know? Hero's tale. Uh, is that all to your keep it, Aida? Yes, yes. Um, okay, Ira, what's your keep it this week? I have two music-related keep it's. Um, I mean, technically three. I could say keep it to Scooter Braun um, for continuing to be um, a supervillain. Um, but I feel like Taylor Swift and the Swifties will murder him in his sleep. So I don't Scooter need gone. to don't need to <laughs> don't need to address him. Um, Though I do think the relationship she has with her fans now, which is this dear Mr. Henshaw epistolary thing she keeps going, <laughs> is pretty funny. <laughs> dear fans, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm trying to adopt by having a newsletter now, Lewis. I know. <laughs> Cop the brand. Cop it. <laughs> Call me Lady Chatterley. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So my second keep it is to Pitchfork for their 5.6 review of Kylie Minogue's disco. I just don't know why Pitchfork continues to review pop music. They don't like it. Like, and even even though now Pitchfork isn't like it was when Lewis and I were in... um, high school, you know, where it was just, like, straight white men reviewing everything. They now have, like, women and, like, non-white people reviewing things. Their opinions on pop music are still shitty. <laughs> so, like, why are we entertaining it? I mean, I'm still recovering from the time Liz Fair's self-titled album got a 0.0. Uh, the author, whatever, 19 years later, apologized for... I think he wrote it when he was 19, and he talked about how his review was ageist and kind of sexist so i appreciated that point of view but i will say though the kylie album not really growing on me weirdly you and i talked about it um before about how it was like maybe our sixth or seventh kylie album it's actually grown on me since seeing the concert oh yeah which was great yeah um she had a digital concert kylie sounds great in concert too She's kind of like a Carly Rae Jepsen. Like, her voice sounds exactly like the record. She's not auto-tuned or anything. Like, that really is how she sings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think that even as someone who can appreciate Kylie Minogue and loves many of her things better than disco, a 5.6 is egregious. Yeah. And it's really at this point just to get attention. It's also the same contributor that gave Rina Soyama a 7.7 on her last album, which should have been a 9.9. At the very least. I really love that album. You know what? Maybe Catherine should stop doing reviews. How about that? Yeah, she should stop. <laughs> well, there's that argument of like, I get that you're musically aware and you're in the business, but I feel like you need to be of a certain age and cultural awareness to review things of that nature. And she kind of passed it. Well, also... <laughs> Music is a very interesting thing to put on like a 10-point rubric as opposed to movies where you can, for instance, like critique what are the goals of the movie and like does, is the story coherent and how are the performances with it? All these things you can dock or really like. And with music, it's just pleasing or not pleasing. I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it's interesting to put on a spectrum. Well, you also have to think about like who the music is made for. And, you know, and like disco is pure faggotry. True. Yes. She, th- this album was not made for you, girl. <laughs> this album was made for gays popping Molly 
and hitting the dance floor. Yeah. No, the the entrance ticket is prep. You you really have to get a subscription. Yeah. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> a popper uh, and a prep. <laughs> uh, my final keep it this week is to Barack Obama's playlist for A Promised Land. <laughs> his new his new memoir. As you know, Barack and Michelle love releasing playlists. <laughs> they they love releasing like a playlist with Beyonce, Jay Z, some um, Aretha, Nina, Miles Davis, um, and then some random other young rap artists to show that they're down. <laughs> um, I I don't necessarily know that they listen to all of the songs that are on these playlists, but. Um, I can sympathize with that because sometimes when I release like a public playlist, like every song on it isn't exactly my jam that I want to listen to, but I'm creating an aesthetic. Right. But (laughs) he put Beyonce's Halo on this playlist. And all Beyonce fans know that we do not fuck with Halo. It's boring. Okay. It is a second worst song after If I Were a Boy. It's just, uh, sorry, third after If I Were a Boy and Single Ladies. It's so annoying. She doesn't even perform it anymore. EXO is a better song that accomplishes the exact same thing that Halo does. And I'm just wondering how beehive Barack actually is if this is up on his playlist. Um, I watched the Bravo show Platinum Hit about 10 years ago, which was a songwriting competition, and the writer of Halo was on. And he goes, Ryan Tedder. Who we were dragging earlier. And he goes, we wrote Halo in 10 minutes. I'm like, the work shows. <laughs> <laughs> You're like trying to impress me with that? Also, let's just talk about Barack's playlist for a split second. Is The Promised Land a slow dance at a wedding? Girl, wake up. Some of these fucking choices. Uh, uh, also, like, that Frank Sinatra. is. Did you really pick the Beatles Michelle because Michelle Obama... I do not need to hear Michelle again. <laughs> also, the thing that Ryan Tedder did is Halo is the exact same song that he also gave to Kelly Clarkson, Already Gone. And you know Beyonce is pressed about that because the Kelly Clarkson song is better than Halo. Oh, definitely. And it's not about a fucking Halo. (laughs) I can see your Halo. Loving that conversation. (laughs) Meanwhile, EXO is like, is moody, atmospheric. I love the music video so much more. It invited a John Mayer cover, which is always a sign of a good song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, come on, Barack. Like, you've been doing these playlists for a minute, but I've had it up to here. He also confusingly said, these are songs from my administration, which maybe he meant he listened to them during his administration, but the only one that's actually from that time is Home by Philip Phillips, and interesting choice is all I'll say. Yeah, I wonder if he means the time or if like certain benchmarks of his presidency, because Paul McCartney did perform that song, Michelle, that is on the playlist mm. at the White House, but that's the only song that I noticed Me? that has any cultural relevance to what happened in his administration. So I think he's confused and was busy with <laughs> Biden, and so he made it in like two minutes before he posted it. I think that's it too, yes. Yeah. I only like Michelle because of the um, random French accents in it. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, my vow. <laughs> but yeah. lose yourself, Negro. <laughs> You put Eminem's Lose Yourself on this playlist. Who's promised land? Kiss FM. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. That's our episode this week. (laughs) 
uh, once again dragging Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week. What will we be doing? It? Girl, you know we are this close to Joe Biden releasing playlists too. Oh man. And we're gonna have to deal Joe with Biden's like about fucking to do live DJ sets. <laughs> Steely Dan is gonna be on it. Um definitely some Bruce. Some credence. Yeah. Uh-huh. Definitely some credence. I'm gonna drag those too. I uh, like a really slick Iggy pop. <laughs> yeah, if he's feeling bad. Yeah. Kamala's playlist. Oh. Salt and Pepper. Tupac's greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Faith Evans, just every song. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, thank you again to Rachel Bloom for joining us. And sorry to Aida's Wi-Fi for dropping out <laughs> during that interview. Oh, my God. I'm so irritated. And it tried to do it during Keep It, too. I was like, girl, no. I'm going to get these, these angers off. You better stop. <laughs> uh, we will see you all next week uh, with our Thanksgiving uh. mailbag episode. Gobble, gobble. Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Malconian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.